We've been doing some of those Sunday night request hours and have enjoyed it so much. Getting used to the hymnal that we've been able to see produced and some of those familiar songs that we love to sing together. Cause for great rejoicing. We'll take your Bibles and let's return to our study of the book of Revelation. And as you know, we are looking at this most difficult and grievous of the seven letters to the churches, the letter to the church at Laodicea, a tragic message having to be given by the Lord Jesus Christ because it was given to a church that had become smug and self-reliant. And you remember that Jesus indicts them for having a heart that basically says, we don't need you, O God. We are all set. We have need of nothing. And while it may be that the church still believed itself useful, and it certainly was given, as we'll see tonight, a message of grace, an offering of an opportunity to repent, it is still the church that made Christ gag. And he said that he wanted to spit it out of his mouth. What was the problem? The problem was that there was no cultivation of the soil in the church for the seed of the gospel and the grace of God then to be extended in useful ministry. No fruitfulness, in other words. It wasn't a field full of weeds, nor was it full of the fruitfulness of active planting and watering and growing. Reading again recently a book that I first ordered when I was a new Christian. It was really a compilation of chapters from Aidan Wilson Tozer. It's in a volume called The Best of Tozer, and I ordered it years ago when there was no internet, and it took several weeks to get to me at a military site, but I got it. And I devoured every chapter. It's been recently republished, and I've been doing some reading again in it with family members, and it's been sweet. One particular chapter is called Miracles Follow the Plow. And in there, he is writing really on the, on the message from Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. And Tozer says this, I thought it was worth noting at some length by way of introduction. There are two kinds of ground, he says, fallow ground and ground that's been broken up by the plow. Listen to this. The fallow field is smug contented, protected from the shock of the plow. Such a field, as it lies year after year, becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Had it intelligence, it might take a lot of satisfaction in its reputation. There is stability. Nature has adopted it. It can be counted upon to remain always the same while the fields around it change from brown and green and back to brown again. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine. The picture of sleepy contentment, but it's paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Nor does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know because it is afraid of the plow. By contrast, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living 
The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery, and the field has felt the travail of change. It's been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken. But its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. And all over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. Nature's wonders follow the plow, Tozer said. And so he said, there are two kinds of lives, the fallow and the plowed. The man of a fallow life is contented with himself and the fruit he once bore. He doesn't want to be disturbed. He smiles in tolerant superiority at revivals, fastings, self-searchings, and all the travail of fruit bearing in the anguish of advance. The spirit of adventure is dead within him. He's steady, quote unquote, faithful, always in his accustomed place, conservative, something of a landmark in the little church. But he's fruitless. The curse of such a life is that it is fixed, both in size and in content. To be has taken the place of to become. The worst that can be said of such a man is that he is what he will be. He's fenced himself in, and by the same act, he's fenced out God and the miracle. But the plowed life, Tozer commented, is the life that has, in the act of repentance, thrown down the protecting fences and sent the plow of confession into the soul. And the urge of the spirit, the pressure of circumstances, and the distress of fruitless living have combined thoroughly to humble the heart. Such a life has put away defense and has forsaken the safety of death for the peril of life. Discontent, yearning, contrition, courageous obedience to the will of God, these have bruised and broken the soil till it is ready again for the seed. And as always, fruit follows the plow. That's right. The problem with Laodicea is that it had become fallow ground. It had become ground that was unwilling to be turned over, unreceptive to seeds of either weeds or fruitful plants. It did nothing. We saw last time the disaster of spiritual mediocrity, and that is what Jesus calls attention to. He had titled himself the certainty and the veracity and the preeminent one. He is the certain one, the amen. He is the truthful one, the faithful and true witness, and he is the preeminent one in the church. And he said that you are mediocre. How did he know? I know your deeds. Your true condition's not hidden. Jesus Christ is omniscient in his church. Every factor has been considered. When he looks at the church, he makes a spiritual appraisal. Every conclusion would be divine as to the condition of the church. And he's always just in his assessments of the church because every verdict he makes is righteous. I know your deeds. Here's your fruitfulness. Don't imagine for one minute that you're otherwise. He knows. And the church is always appropriately reproved and corrected and every chastisement, every chastening is tailor-made, is perfect. And he said to this church, 
that their ministry was spiritually bland. There's no fervency or hostility. Notice, he says, you're neither cold nor hot. There's no fervency or hostility. There's, there's no weeds growing up against the, the grain, and there's no real plant to bear fruit, and there's nothing, no battle going on in the soil. It's flat. It's self-reliant, contented to be undisturbed. And Jesus says, I wish you were either cold or hot. In other words, to be blatant either way is better than bland, the Lord said. We saw the dangers last time of a lukewarm church. I gave you the marks of it. Just to quickly review, truth begins to get passed on without clarity. Anytime that happens in the church, you're headed for lukewarmness. Biblical implications start to get ignored. A superficial kind of peace with weakness and sinful believers becomes the norm. There's sort of a comfortableness that enters the church. You make peace with weakness. Uh, strength becomes equal to the lowest common spiritual denominator. That's where you think the ceiling is in terms of the pursuit of holiness. And convictions about holiness of life start to be viewed as overkill. You read passages that speak about holiness of life, and in a church that's lukewarm, those things seem too disturbing. There's too much upheaval with that. Surely that can't be what God means. Preaching becomes more palatable. Cultural influences ooze into the body of Christ. They're defined as liberties when really they're just coverings for sin. In that kind of environment, new leaders, we said, will rise up, and they're unproven typically because the ministry doesn't demand anything more than that, and so they're morally weakened in their character, thus perpetuating the undisturbed lukewarmness of the church. Telltale signs of a lukewarm ministry, then, are things like the social gospel. They begin to consume the time and resources of the church. Doctrinal statements become vague. Church discipline is abandoned. Men are abdicating spiritual leadership, and aggressive women begin to take over the church, clamoring for authority and leadership. Families begin promoting more and more positive views of cultural morality. Marriages drift into worldliness. Divorce rates increase. Narcissism rushes into the church. Parenting is neglected. Worldly entertainments are seen as neutral. And soon, you're not even debating truth anymore, contending for the truth. No one is interested in cleansing the church of any rampant error. And if enough people still feed off of religious appearances, then the church claims to be vibrant, but it's just fallow ground. It's exactly what Jesus said makes him sick. Verse 16, because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. What was tragic was their smug perspective, which we looked at last time, verse 17, Jesus said, here's what you're saying, I'm rich, and I've become wealthy, and have need of nothing. You remember Laodicea, that was a great spiritual metaphor from the way the church existed in its cultural background. It was a wealthy place, as I said, a school of medicine, and all kinds of intelligentsia, and Marketing of their industry was huge, and they made many profits. The only downside was they had to get water, as I said, from outside places. It may very well be that this was a reference to that whole dynamic, where the city north of them had 
had hot springs and hot water, and the cities south of them had cold, fresh water, but everything that passed through Laodicea could very well have been tepid, unsanitary, typically. Maybe it's even that Jesus was opening that metaphor up for us to understand from its own context. Their perspective was that they're rich, and they have arrived at the place where they don't need anything and he says, Here is the, here's the problem with your perspective. Ironically, it's exactly the opposite. You do not know, you're utterly blind about your real condition, which is miserable and distressed, pathetic, spiritually impoverished, or we might say morally bankrupt, unable to understand, and you're particularly vulnerable to everything that's destructive. You're totally unprotected. Blind, wretched, pitiable, poor, and naked. That's your real condition. So they're smug, but they are making the Lord ill. That is the disaster of spiritual mediocrity. Where the Lord turns from there is, is absolutely astounding. He goes from the disaster of spiritual mediocrity to, to his mercy and the delight of it for the believer, for the church. Look, if you want to repent, there is counsel given. And it is delightful counsel from the Savior. It reflects his utter mercy. And that's where we find ourselves in verses 18 and following. The Lord comes and offers mercy, and it is delightful because of its specificity. Notice verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Stop right there. Here you have the delight of the Savior's mercy coming on the heels of this illness that Jesus experiences, this offensiveness to his spiritual sensibilities as the Lord of the church. And he mentions here first that there is a counsel that he wants to offer and it is of the highest nature. It is the highest counsel you can know. It is the only place you can turn for the solution. Say, how do we know that? Well, he says, I advise you or I counsel you. I love the fact that this is really a reference back to the the titles that he gave him himself, particularly the amen. If you want certain clarity about your problem and certain solutions to your problem, you turn to Christ. I am consulting with you. I'm counseling you. I'm advising you. In fact, the verb actually has the idea of inviting them into a discussion about their problem and bringing specific solutions for the deliverance out of this disaster. This is intimate. This is nearness. I'm astounded by this. 
I advise you, I invite you into a discussion about your problem. I draw near to you, even though I want to spit you out of my mouth for lukewarmness. If there's anyone who might be zealous, anyone who might want to repent, I am going to bring counsel. I'm going to consult with you and invite you into this discussion so that I can help you specifically. I love that. It reminds me of Job 12, 13. With him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. With God, there is counsel. With God, there are answers. He said in Isaiah 40, 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He knows. He has the answer. He's sufficient, specific, tailor-made. We know this even from the doxological explosion in Paul's own heart in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Why would you want to become the kind of church that says, I have need of nothing, when actually we ought to be starving and hungry for everything that comes from the mouth of God as a ministry? Because it's unfathomable what he says. It is unsearchable what he decides. It is wisdom. It is knowledge. It is rich. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding, Proverbs 2, verse 6. Wisdom and power belong to him, the prophet Daniel said in chapter 2, verse 20. Wisdom and power. And we're told that in a trial, in a difficulty, in a time when your heart is tested whether you're going to trust God or not, if any of you lacks wisdom, James 1, 5, let him ask of God. We've studied that before. He gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God dispenses counsel. He invites us into a discussion with him and his word about our problem. Here he is inviting the Laodiceans into a discussion about their problem. And he wants to counsel them specifically. I love this. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in his church saying, turn to me. Turn away from the idea that you need nothing, but don't turn somewhere else. Don't turn to some other answer. Certainly don't turn inward. We have a major problem in our evangelical culture in that, as David Wells said in his classic work on the subject, human beings now, Christians now, are turning inward to decide what is truth and what is not. How it hits me is how I decide whether it rings true or not. Whereas truth is objective and spoken to God's people from God outside of the human being, and we're called to respond to it. You don't decide what wisdom is, and you don't decide what the best source of wisdom is, nor do you filter Christ and his wisdom. If you do that, you are on your way to becoming fallow ground and on your way to lukewarmness in the Christian life. No, we, we should respond. Yesterday, we were doing a little Q&A with the leadership team of the college ministry and talking about that very thing. What is the average problem that, that is coming into the ministry at that age level? What is the average believer struggling with? And it's this very issue right here. Who do you turn to for counsel? If God invites you to his word to discuss your problem and find clarity about your problem, why would you say, I have need of nothing, 
Or would you say, I, I do have need of God, and then you run off to these other sources and, and make an admixture of what God says and what, what comes out of you and what comes out of the world. That's what makes for fallow ground, undisturbed and neither hot nor cold. And yet, in our conversion, it is Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, 1 Corinthians 1.30. And it is, according to Colossians 2.3, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you remember in our great study of Psalm 32 that he says there, I want you to not be stubborn, Psalm 32 Verse 8 and following, I don't want you to be stubborn like a, what, a mule <laughs> whose trappings are bitten bridle. No, I want to counsel you with my eye upon you. I want to counsel you by watching your life and know its needs and the specificity with which God watches over his people. I will counsel you with my eye on you. This is Jesus Christ saying to the Laodiceans, I'll advise you. Come to me and me alone. There are specific answers I want to give you. I love Psalm 119, verse 73. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Two Hebrew terms that, that give the broader sense that he's the source of all that I am as creator. And then he fashioned me in all of my specifics. He knows my wiring. He knows how truth's going to hit me. He knows the conviction that's going to be necessary. He knows how my mind is going to have to be captivated. He knows the error that's going to have to be exposed. The error he's going to have to shine a light on and then through whom and how many times. He knows all that. How are we doing that, bro? One second. I can yell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Can you hear me? which Christ counsels his people is the issue. When you are looking for answers to solve your spiritual problem, you can look nowhere else or you end up lukewarm. You end up fallow ground. Why? Because he made me and fashioned me. And so the psalmist says, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Psalm 103, verse 14, for he himself knows our frame that we are out of the dust. <coughs> That's who we are. Jesus makes it even more personal in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Don't you love that? Learn from me. You've been taught of God, the writer would say. And even in Jesus' earthly ministry with the disciples, he made sure that the timing of what they learned was Taylor Bay. Hey, I have many more things to say to you, he said in John 16, but you're not ready for them right now. You're not just a sweet kindness from the Lord. You can't handle it. Your faith can't handle it. You'd get crushed. Oh, remember Peter? Oh, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Oh, Peter. And all the other disciples, I will stand. And they got on. Why did they get on? They trusted in their own counsel. They did not trust in the Lord. 
So you know what the Lord did? He protected them from the most faith-crushing events. Back in the garden, he said, if you want me, let me go. So that the word would be fulfilled of all that the Father gave him, he lost none of them. What a sweet protection from the Lord. Back to Revelation 3, Jesus is saying to the land of sin, I want to advise you specifically. But if you're going to sin, or you've drifted away, or the fallow ground is what is in your heart, you must turn to Christ. How's that? I can still yell. <laughs> in fact, I kind of like that open air feel. Something energizing about that. If you have gotten to the place where the soil of your heart has been unplowed, and you want to get back to inviting the plow and letting God disturb your heart, Jesus is saying here, let me bring you into a discussion and show you the specifics of how to do that. And notice how Taylor made his counsel is to the Laodiceans, given their present condition. First of all, he demonstrates the rich irony of the situation. They said they are rich. Notice he says, verse 18, I advise you to buy from me. Now there's a rich irony. You guys are going down into the marketplace, willing to go all day long to the local marketplace and flaunt your wealth and boast of your reputation. And you go down into the, into the marketplace and declare yourself sufficient in of yourselves. But if you truly want to spend your wealth on real riches, then exchange all of it in one shot just to have me. Buy from me. You want to you wanna spend your efforts and your energy somewhere so that you can grow? You go to Christ. And you do what... The person did in the parable of the pearl of great price, Matthew 13, 45 and 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and he sold all that he had and bought it. That's what Jesus says to the Laodiceans. Look, forget your imagining that you're spiritually rich. Jettison all of that self-sufficiency and come to me. You say, well, what's it going to cost? Listen, Jesus already paid the price to save sinners. What he calls you to do is come to him and exclusively to him and jettison all self-sufficiency. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And guess what happens? The prophet Isaiah tells us in chapter 55, verse 1, what happens. Listen, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Without money and without cost, you come. I love that. The spiritual resources are made available in Christ, and you must deny your self-sufficiency, and you can have them all, and it will cost you nothing of any earthly goods. Nothing. You can't purchase what Christ is offering you just come to him and him alone. What a rich irony. Here's this wealthy community, and as a metaphor, they're saying they're spiritually wealthy, and Jesus says, you want to buy something, you buy from me. Spend it all on me. That is the richest irony. The highest counsel given and the richest irony in which it is given. 
And as I said, it's specific. Whenever the Lord counsels us in his word, the spirit makes it specific. And it is no less here with the Laodiceans. And so the richest irony in his counsel becomes very specific to give them a truly authentic church life. They were not authentic. They were neither hot nor cold. He wants to vomit them out of his mouth, but he offers a truly authentic church life. Wow, this is like service to the core. How you doing, Sam? I'm good. Nothing like having Spurgeon come up and give you a microphone. <laughs> All right, we'll let that get out of our minds for a second. <laughs> Thank you for your service, guys. What is the truly authentic church life, as Jesus says it here? I love this. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. The first thing he says is, you're not rich, you're actually poor and impoverished, and I want you to come and buy from me gold refined by fire. All kinds of commentators have wandered around trying to think through what this may mean. What does it represent? Well, we know a few things just from the context. First of all, we know it is the contrast to spiritual poverty, according to verse 17. So we know that Jesus is saying here, I want you to buy spiritual riches from me and things that will not be impoverished, that which actually produces spiritual fruit. We also know that the concept of a pure substance is in view to some degree because that's the refining process. In scripture, the Bible speaks of a refining process and when it, when it uses gold as the illustration, you know what happens when you refine gold. You put it through the testing of heat. And in that testing of heat, everything is melted down and the dross is taken off and the purities of that precious metal are brought out. So there must be latent in this concept the idea of purity. Come buy from me a pure heart. Come buy from me a pure spirituality. Yours is a dead spirituality. Yours is one that isn't disturbed by the truth, doesn't want to be disturbed by the truth, has become comfortable with sort of this contented, smug view of your spirituality as resting in yourself. So we know it has to do with what you believe about your need. So therefore, it has to involve faith. Jesus is saying, come to me alone for a strengthened understanding of your spiritual need and a strengthened faith to feed on my food. That's essentially, even from the context, what he must mean here. You are impoverished as it relates to your faith. You are impoverished as it relates to your assessment of your spiritual condition. You are morally impoverished in that you do not understand that you are about to be set aside by Christ violently removed from your pretending. And I want you to come to me and I want you to look to me for the spiritual assessment, look to me for the grace that strengthens, look to me for a robust faith which will take testing, trials, difficulties, upheaval. What does he mean? Come to me and let my truth work on the fallow ground of your heart. 
Let it do its work. Man, beloved, when you come to the scriptures and it begins that overturning work, the plowing work, that is when your faith is most tested. And what is God doing in the plowing work? He is wanting you to be weaned from that which you rest on so that you are utterly dependent upon him. He wants you to get rid of everything that you might rest upon that will take you from him, that will make you ineffective, that will keep you from worship that is pure, from faith that is strong, from endurance that is long-lasting. And we know here he is trying to get them out of their spiritually impoverished state. So he wants them spiritually rich. So it's probably intending to say, come to me for faith that is refined. Come to me for a spiritual life that is upturned and refined. New seeds planted, always growing, ever constant. Is that how your Christian life is? You know, sometimes the testings and the trials come in such succession that the temptation is to say, Lord, I've had enough. I've literally had enough. Okay. The temptation, though, is, is to say, I... I, I think you've gone too far. I can't handle any more. I am at the end of my rope and I've passed over that line. And as we've known in passages like James that test our endurance and Hebrews 12 that brings the discipline of the Lord and pressure to increase our virtue. In those texts, there is a tendency to imagine that God has somehow slipped up, which is why even those authors have to say things like, Have you forgotten that you haven't resisted unto the shedding of blood and you're striving against sin? Don't lose heart. Endure. Run the race with endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, James 1, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our tendency is to not want to get to the place where we just depend upon Christ because we love comfort. We don't like pain. And the Laodiceans got comfortable in that state. God brought the plow along and they put up a barrier. We could say it this way, beloved, if you really want to bear fruit, you must allow the truth of Christ in his word to bring the plow to your heart and your life. Ours is a constant state of upheaval, of spiritual machinery. And the Holy Spirit is the farmer yelling where to put the the pharaohs and where to put the seed. That is your life as a Christian. Anything less is stagnation. Anything less is a loss of the yearning. Jesus says, you come to me and you buy a refined faith. How do you buy a refined faith? Stop saying you need nothing. Repent of that. You need everything. I need everything about Christ every day of my life. 
I want to be dependent upon Christ every day of my life. And still to this day, I am plagued by those fleshly temptations to say, no, that's going to mean too much discomfort. That's going to bring a plow in areas I don't want tilled up. I don't want the soil of that area overturned. Lord, you say you're going to plant new seed, but then that has to be overturned and the weeds pulled. I don't want that. Jesus says, you have need of me. Come and buy it and let me refine it. Let me strengthen your faith. Let me produce in you a greater grace that is sufficient so that you may endure. What a great bit of counsel to this church. I advise you. I get into discussion with you. I bring you along and I tell you, you're... You're imagining that you're rich. The irony is that you're not. You're poor and impoverished. And I'm telling you, take everything that you believe you are sufficient in, jettison it, and trade it in for me. And let me begin to do my work. And you may indeed yet grow some fruit. Second thing he mentions here is I want you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. <laughs> what is he talking about here? Well, for any unbeliever in the church who's pretending to be part of God's people, clearly he's saying you need to come and have a covering righteousness given to you by God. Christ is the Lord of his church. The only way you, you are acceptable to God, justified before God, is the covering righteousness of Christ, which isn't yours. You can't say, I have need of nothing. Look, at the beginning of a true Christian's life, you've already said, I need everything that Christ offers. If you came to Christ to ask for salvation, and you brought the notion that you do not need him totally or entirely, or that you bring anything to the equation, you don't know Christ. Because no one can come to Christ who hasn't jettisoned all of their hope in themselves. Your faith cannot rest on men and claim redemption. If you're here tonight and you know Christ, it's because as in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the great exchange has taken place. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for you on your behalf that you might become the righteousness of Christ. And in that great work of imputation, that great accounting of his righteousness to your life and your eternity, that great reckoning that took place as you were in Christ when he paid for your sin, you in that moment were declared when you believed in Christ, righteous, covered with a foreign righteousness, not your own. Jesus says, come to me and buy white garments because if you say you have need of nothing, you're blinded to your own spiritual condition. It also, for the believer in the church, must have reference to sanctification. Come to me for actual strength to grow into Christ-likeness, to be conformed to his image. Progressive sanctification. In fact, in the 19th chapter of Revelation, this theme comes up again in the kingdom. It was given to her, God's people, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. How marvelous is that? Righteous acts, conformity to Christ, clean. Clean. 
inside and out. In the kingdom, finally clean in all ways as sin is completely removed from God's people. And notice the purpose clause here as each of these items to be purchased from Christ have a purpose clause. Notice, so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Look, you think that you're rich and wealthy and have the finest of clothes on, but you are naked. You're exposed. Naked to what? Vulnerable to what? Well, if you're an unbeliever in Laodicea, vulnerable to judgment. Judgment's coming. You think you're okay, but you're not. To the believer in the group, he's saying, I don't want you to to become stagnant and therefore under the perpetual chastening of God, which would be unnecessary if you were to be obedient, humble. Hebrews 12 says that he does some rebuking and chastening of our lives when we're in sin. I don't want you to think you have need of nothing even as a Christian and say you you don't need the chastening of God or or that which is painful, he says. The tests of the Lord, the trials of the Lord, and the chastening of God seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. All discipline, all of it, paideia, all the pressure to increase virtue, all of the ways that God moves into our life to teach us to stay away from sin and to hold us accountable to the consequences so that we learn those lessons. And this divine loving parent comes alongside of us as legitimate children. All of that pressure comes into our life, he says, and and is sorrowful for the moment and not joyful. But afterwards, afterwards, those who have been trained by it, it's emphatic in the, in the original language, those who have been trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So after the, the struggle of chastening, he says to the Laodiceans, this is what you want. You want the peaceful fruit of actual righteousness so that you won't have the shame of your nakedness revealed. For some of you at the judgment, you don't even know Christ. For some of you, You're like 1 Corinthians 3. You get to the place where you see Christ and and you're saved, yet so as through fire, because most of what you did with the resources Christ gave you turned into an ash heap of wood, hay, and stubble, burned up, ineffective, unfruitful. What a sweet thing for the Lord to say, come to him for. Come to me and purchase white garments. Come to me for salvation and come to me for all the power and grace that that produces in your life to actually be conformed to Christ. And let me just add one thing, beloved. The more you come under this great work of being conformed to the image of Christ, the further away you will ever get from stagnation and imagining that you need nothing. That is to say, the more you know Christ and the closer you become conformed to him, the more you see your need. The further away you are from self-sufficiency and self-reliance and the tendency for the human heart to say, I don't don't need anything. You sometimes see older believers in the Lord and they've been in Christ a long time. and You wonder why it is that on the one hand, some seasoned saints just seem to 
to rely on Christ in every trial. They rely on Christ for every difficulty. And life does get more difficult, the more aged they become. And yet, they, they, they don't see themselves as anything. And then there's another saint who's been in Christ a long time and they become more bitter and more difficult and more self-righteous and less reliant on the word of God and more frustrated and angry with life. What's happened? One has not learned the lesson of coming to Christ for greater growth. One has gotten away from the word of God and one immerses themselves in it. And the one who immerses themselves in it never sees himself as anything. I'll never forget one of the sweetest senior saints in this church when I arrived here. And he wasn't the patriarch Roy Rood, who himself was one of the most influential Christians on anyone who knew him. But it was another man named Roy in our midst. He sat right here every service. And well into his 90s, he played tennis three days a week. He was a remarkable guy, tiny man. And there wasn't a service preached or a text explored where he didn't break down and weep every single service. And every time I came down, I said, Roy, how are you? And he said, I am so unworthy of the mercy of Christ, and I just want to serve him, and yet I'm such a failure. The man oozed godliness. He had gone to Christ and bought white garments jettisoned everything of his self-sufficiency and bought white garments and then stayed close to Christ as his only counsel and his only resource. And it taught him every day just how unworthy he is and how much he needs Christ. He got into his 90s as a believer and he fed deeply off of sermons about passages he's heard preached for years. What about you? You think you're clothed enough? You think you spiritually have enough? Or do you see yourself as so far from honoring Christ the way we ought? And then Jesus says, come and buy from me I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. That's familiar terminology. One's mind goes immediately to the Gospel of John, doesn't it? John 9, Jesus heals the blind man and Pharisees come around him. Who healed you? How did, how did this happen? And they keep asking him, who healed you? How did this happen? Who healed you? How did this happen? And they're saying, well, this is an he said, this is an interesting thing. You know that from time immemorial, no man has been able to open the eyes of someone blind unless they were from God. It just hasn't happened. And now it happened and you don't know where the guy's from? And they castigated him. Oh, you, you know, we're the teachers of Israel. You're teaching us. You're uneducated. You're a, you know, spiritual dwarf compared to us, and you're going to teach us? And later, he and Jesus are talking together, and Jesus makes the spiritual analogy. Look, I've come to open the eyes of the blind. The Pharisees were clearly within earshot following the whole entire scenario. They'd seen the miracle, couldn't deny it, wanted to chide him, chided his parents. His parents were afraid to say anything. 
And the Pharisees said, oh, I, I get your point, Jesus. What are you saying? That we have need of eye salve? Is that what you're saying? And Jesus told them, if you knew you were blind, you'd be forgiven. You'd have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Jesus tells the church at Laodicea, you say you can see, but you're actually blind and you need to come to me so that you may see. I want you to see clearly. And verse 19 is so tender. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Look, if you're in the church and this is a reproof to your heart, you're a legitimate son and there is no legitimate child of God that is without discipline. Those who are without discipline, Hebrews 12 says, are not legitimate children of God. Man, if you can listen to something like this and just come and go indifferently, it's no big deal. It's no big deal to you. You are not a legitimate child of God because no child of God who is legitimately his is without the discipline of the Lord so that you may see. And, and being legitimate, you're loved. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And those whom he receives, he scourges. Man, what a loving statement. Therefore, he says, be zealous and repent. Crank up the passion, or we might say, crank up the plow. Scrape the rust off that thing. Open the gates that you've put as a hedge around your heart so that the plow couldn't get in. Knock the gates down. Let the Lord come in and turn up that fallow ground of your heart. Repent. He says, verse 20 then, we'll, we'll address this in our final message next time, but just, just looking at it. Behold, stand, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and we'll dine with him and he with me. I, I am part of your life. I am not a guest any longer. I live there. I will dine with you, you with me. This is like John chapter 14, 15, and 16, the Father and the Son will take up their abode within the believer by the power of the Spirit, and we will commune together and be one together. As a church, he is saying, look, I am standing right there. It's, it is urgent, and I am within reach. All you got to do is open the door. Just open the door. What's happened to evangelicalism today? We've stopped yearning for the work of Christ and the coming of Christ. We've stopped yearning for it. We've become comfortable. Let me finish again with an excerpt from Tozer. Very poignant. If the tender yearning is gone from the Advent hope today, that is to say, the coming of Christ. There must be a reason for it, and I think I know what it is. I love it when an author just talks to you like that. I think I know what it is. I'm about to tell you. Christians are so comfortable in this world that they have little desire to leave it. For those leaders who set the pace of evangelicalism and determine its content and quality, Christianity has become, of late, remarkably lucrative. The streets of gold don't have too great an appeal for those who find it so easy to pile up gold and silver in the service of the Lord here on earth. 
We all want to reserve the hope of heaven as a kind of insurance against the day of death. But as long as we're healthy and comfortable, why change a familiar good for something about which we actually know very little? Why change the good stuff we're stockpiling here for something in heaven that's got to be taken on faith? So reasons the carnal mind, and so subtly that we are scarcely aware of it. Again, in these times, religion has become jolly good fun right here in this present world. And what's the hurry about heaven anyway? Christianity, contrary to what some had thought, is another higher form of entertainment. Christ has done all the suffering. He has shed all the tears and carried all the crosses. We have but to enjoy the benefits of his heartbreak in the form of religious pleasures modeled after the world, but carried on in the name of Jesus. So say the same people who claim to believe in Christ's second coming. He finishes with this. History reveals that times of suffering for the church have also been times of looking upward. Tribulation has always sobered God's people and encouraged them to look for and yearn after the return of their Lord. Our present preoccupation with this world may be a warning of bitter days to come. God will wean us from the earth some way, the easy way if possible, the hard way if necessary. It's up to us. That's a poignant word. It is fitting that the Lord Jesus Christ would bring a delightful counsel rooted in his mercy, so specific, and say to this church, I am ready. I'm ready. We don't want to be lukewarm. Let the plow do its work. Let the word of God do its work, beloved. And... We have to trust him, and I know how faint our hearts can be. So we pray for one another, we help one another, we work together, and we see the Lord do this great work. If we want the kind of spiritual gold and spiritual covering, spiritual eyesight that Christ offers, we run to Christ and Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to keep us from this kind of smugness, self-reliance, comfortableness, where we merely do the same thing over and over again with no real fruitfulness, no radical upheaval, no overturning of those places where the seed needs to find new, fresh nutrients and warm soil underneath. And may we always turn to you. You're the kind of God that is near and so specific in your counsel. Because you love your people and you reprove and discipline us so that we might wean ourselves from these tendencies and become fruitful. Lord, as a church, we're, we're sensing the great springtime of ministry that we have been enjoying. And it has been wonderful for the fruitfulness of the gospel we're in that place where we could be tempted to say we have need of nothing. May we be like the senior saint who feeds on your word and your counsel to such a degree that they always know that if it weren't for you or grace on a daily basis, the shame of our vulnerable nakedness would be exposed and revealed. 
And if it were not for your gold refined, our faith refined in the fires of struggle, we would think ourselves rich, all the while blind to our poverty. And were it not for your grace and counsel and kindness, we wouldn't see what we need to see. Thank you for always calling us with reproof and discipline back to zeal and repentance. May we be those who, like maybe some in Laodicea, were truly penitent and overcame based upon a great message and warning from a loving Lord who is also Lord of the church and judge of souls. Keep us from lukewarmness, we pray in your name, the Lord of the church. Amen.